bullhead. An experience with somebody who just gives us a really difficult time. There is a person in my life right now at whom I'm having a really difficult time. He has control issues, to be perfectly blunt. He always wants his way. He quite frequently aggravates me, often discourages me, frequently frustrates me. He never desires anything that seems beneficial. Everything is a battle with this man. He's a typical problem person. Now normally, I would avoid anything that might publicly embarrass someone, but I'm gonna make an exception today. I'm going to tell you who I'm talking about. You're looking at him. That's right. Yeah. I'm, I'm my most frustrated, I'm the most frustrating person I have in my life. <laughs> you might say I'm my own worst enemy. Now, as embarrassing as that is to state that, it's not quite that embarrassing because I know you're your own worst enemy too. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, my own experience tells me that, number one. But more importantly, the scripture tells me that. Now, I'm not going to put this on screen and I'm not going to read it, but you might want to jot down Romans 7, verses 14 to 25. Romans 7, 14 to 25. Go read it sometime and you'll find out there that Paul, the great apostle, pretty much said, you know, I'm my biggest problem. And beyond that, Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, which is a little bit before the verses we're going to look at in earnest this morning. Galatians 5, 17, as Paul introduces the subject this morning, says, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. <laughs> yeah, he said there's... A battle going on on the inside of every one of us. Now he's talking about those that have trusted Christ as Savior. Those of us that have been born again and made a new creation. There is a struggle going on on the inside of us. Within the, the confines of our soul and our mind. You see, we have what Paul here calls the flesh. And what he's referring to is the old man, the old nature that we were born with, that we inherited. And we have these fleshly lusts and desires that continually compel us to do things that we should not do. And on the other hand, we have trusted Christ as Savior and we've been given new life and we've been regenerated and we're a new creature in Christ. And 
The Spirit of God who indwells us is compelling us to do just the opposite of the flesh. Because there's a constant struggle, a constant battle that ensues within us. So yes, we are our own worst enemy, so to speak. Now, obviously, we need to follow the Spirit and not the flesh. But that's, that's easier said than done. In fact, what we're going to talk about this morning, you might say, is the meat. We're part of the meat of the Word. It's not milk. It's not basic stuff. It's, it's something that, well, you struggle with from Christian infancy and, well, all the way up to even maturity. There's always a battle going on. And what I'm about to describe to you about this battle is hard to understand. It's hard to fathom. It's hard to really get our minds around. And it's even more difficult to apply on a regular basis. So I hope you're ready for a nice steak this morning. Because this is not the milk of the word. We're going to look at chapter 5 of Galatians, verses 22 to 25. We're going to talk about winning the battle that's going on within us. And we're going to focus on what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit, which he begins to describe in verse 22. For it is the fruit of the Spirit that will be present in our life if we are being led by the Spirit. Now, if we are yielding instead to the desires of the flesh, there will be no fruit of the Spirit. I mean, at that juncture, at least. The fruit of the Spirit, then, should be present in our daily lives. In fact, you need to back up, first of all, to verse 16 of the same chapter, where Paul says this, I say, then walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So we have an obligation to walk in the Spirit, not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, <clears throat> the verb here, walk, is a present tense imperative. That means it's a command. We're told to walk. And by the way, the prepositions here in the translation, in the Spirit, you'll, you'll hear me say this, and it's probably a little bit more accurate. He's saying walk by the Spirit. It's a present tense, meaning it's an all time, every day, every moment responsibility, and it's an imperative. We're commanded to do it, walk by the Spirit. And if we are following along and uh, fulfilling that command, then the fruit of the Spirit will be present in our lives. So we have, should have, the fruit of the Spirit present. The fruit of the Spirit should be present in our daily lives. And that's what I want to talk to you about in verses 22 to 25. Now the question is, how is this achieved? Now in spite of the fact that I just simplified it, I oversimplified it. It's not just a matter of being obedient. As far as I'm going to have the fruit of the Spirit in my life today, obedient. It doesn't work quite like that. And we're going to get to that discussion. So hold on to your hats, okay? We're going to have to stick with this text, try to understand it. 
but it's life-changing if you do. So how is it achieved? How is it that the Holy Spirit can produce this fruit in our lives and, and, and we can cooperate with him and see that become a reality in our daily lives? Well, number one, we have to understand something about what it is we're trying to see or what it is the Holy Spirit's trying to do. So the first thing we need to note is this. The fruit of the Spirit is reflected in our character. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. It's talking about inward Holy Spirit-produced character. Or character qualities. We can't produce it. Only the Holy Spirit can produce it. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. That's why it's not just as simple as, okay, I'm going to be loving or peaceful today. There's another layer to the whole process. But let's take a look at this fruit. There are nine character qualities that Paul lists for us here. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There they are, all nine of them. Now, you will find different translations put different words in here in the English. They're all the same, obviously, in the original text. Now, this is the, King, the New King James translation. So if you're using another translation, they, they won't be exactly the same words. But the concepts are the same. And we want to go down through these and, and just give you a, a little brief definition or some words that help describe it so we can just really understand what each of them is saying to us. Now, before you begin to take furious notes as I go through a definition for every one of these, relax, you don't have to. It's all printed out for you. There's a stack here, there's a stack over here, in front of the piano and just past that uh, speaker there on my left. So after the service, you just come up and pick it up and you're going to see everything you're going to see on screen right now. So you can focus on what we're talking about. You don't have to be wondering, did I miss something? So let's talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Let's talk about love first. Love here is a Greek word agape and it is the highest form of love. There's more than one Greek word for love in the New Testament. But this is the one that is the highest form of love, the most godlike. You see, for God so loved the world, John 3.16. For God so loved, that's agape, a form, the verb form of the word agape. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So we're talking about self-sacrificing love, love that gives what somebody needs. It is a choice. It is not simply an emotion. Now, I know in our society today, love is conceived of as emotion. Emotion I can't control. Emotion I can't help. Listen, emotion is a part of love. But biblically speaking, love is a choice. That's why the scripture says, husbands love your wives. That's a command, by the way. And you'll hear people say, well, I just don't love my wife anymore. I just don't love my husband. What? So what? The scripture says, love your wife. Love your husband. It's a command. It's a choice. You do it in spite of how you might feel at that moment. So this is the kind of love that is a part of what we call the fruit of the Spirit. And then there is joy. Now joy here means internal well-being. 
It's not dictated by circumstances. It's not circumstantial joy. You know, we can be happy if something good happens to us. We can be joyful. The next moment we can be sad if something bad happens to us. But this is internal joy that is produced by the Holy Spirit and is not dependent upon the circumstances. Then there is peace. Peace is what I would call tranquility of mind, calmness. Peace is like being in the eye of that hurricane when everything is perfectly calm and still and quiet, although the storm rages all around you. Then there's long-suffering. Some translations will use the word patience. Uh, Unfortunately, the way we use the term patience in our modern-day world, it doesn't quite fully express the meaning of the Greek here. It means to be long-suffering. It means to endure irritation, endure pain if necessary over this or that or what someone does or says or what the circumstances are. To just be able to tolerate all of that without being devastated, upset, or frustrated. Then there's kindness. Now, the, the sense here is to be inclined to be helpful, to be uh, benevolent in feeling toward other people, to be ready to be of assistance. And that means that we're not focused on self and what we want at every moment. And then there is goodness. Now, goodness means to be upright of heart, to be a just person, someone who has a good, functional, biblically taught conscience. And then there's faithfulness. And Faithfulness, we use this term rightly most of the time. We talk about somebody as being faithful. It means that they are trustworthy and that they persevere and therefore they are, they are loyal and they're not wishy-washy. And then there is the word here, the trait of gentleness, which means that a person is inoffensive. Now look, but sometimes we can't help being offensive if we have to speak the truth in love. But we can speak the truth in love and not be otherwise, other than the truth of the matter, not be otherwise offensive to people. That means that you have to have some meekness, some humility. And that's all bound up in this term gentleness. And finally, there is self-control. Translated temperance in the King James. Self-control means to have restraint. And especially to be able to restrain yourself from following those fleshly lusts that are always, you know, pulling at you. So these are the parts, the qualities, the character aspects of what we're talking about here that we call the fruit of the Spirit, that which is produced in us by the Spirit of God. Now, to be Christ-like is to be bearing the fruit of the Spirit. It's Christ who is out sin, Christ who is the, the perfect Son of God. He had all those traits all the time. Now, that's our goal. We won't achieve it, but uh, Christ did. He was loving. That's why he came into this world to die, to give himself a ransom for those that were sinners. He was joyful. In fact, the Scripture it says when the judgment comes in Matthew 25, the particular judgment there, that uh, those who uh, pass the judgment of the Lord says, uh, enter into the joy of the Lord. Now this is in reference to the kingdom. and It's uh, 
end time prophecy there. I mean, obviously, when any of us pass from this life to the next, we're going to enter into the joy of the Lord as well, because the Lord is joy. And Jesus was always peaceful. Remember, he slept in the boat. While the storm was so bad on the Sea of Galilee, all the disciples were fighting for their life so they wouldn't be capsized and drowned. They woke him up and said, you know, how can you sleep in this? What, what, you know, don't you realize they're about to go under? And he said, uh, peace, be still. The storm was quelled. He was long-suffering. We just recently talked about the denials of Peter. Now, he called Peter a rock very early when he first met Peter. He said, Peter, you're the rock. See, Peter's name was Simon. Peter means rock. That was a nickname Jesus gave to him. He was anything but a rock. He was all over the map. He was up. He was down. Couldn't control his words, his thoughts, or his actions. Ultimately, he denied the Lord three times. So he didn't really become the rock until after the resurrection of Christ. But he did become a rock. And Jesus was long-suffering through the whole process with him. So Jesus had all these qualities. Uh, He was obviously kind. He was kind to the woman at the well. He was kind to the woman taken in adultery. He was good. He fed the multitudes that were hungry. He was faithful. He wept over Jerusalem. And even down to the end before he died, he committed his mother Mary to the care of the disciple John. He was gentle and meek. He asked the Heavenly Father even to forgive his crucifiers. He was self-controlled. He fasted before his temptation. He was perfectly under control during all those trumped up charges and trials before the authorities there in Jerusalem and kept his silence. So he, he's our model. Christ-likeness, Christian maturity is about seeing the fruit of the Spirit in your life and having it be evident, exhibiting it. You see, although it's internal, and it's produced internally by the Spirit, it, it is outwardly apparent for, because it affects our actions. Our attitudes determine our actions. Now the fruit of the Spirit here, looking again at verse 22, I note for you, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit. It does not say, but the fruits of the Spirit. There's only one fruit of the Spirit. Now that seems confusing to our mind because we just listed 12 things and Paul just listed 12 things. So why is it singular? Well, think of an orange, if you will. Now, a nice good orange, they're, they're so good. I'm not, a, I'm not big on eating fruit, but I like to eat an orange. As long as I get somebody to peel it for me. Don't really like that process too much. But when you peel an orange and you, you, you open it up, that beautiful orange fruit has multiple segments. That's really handy for eating it. I mean, you don't bite into an orange like you do an apple. I mean, if you did, I mean, you know, you'd just spray the room with, with orange juice. Not really what you want to do with orange juice. So, but it, a, a orange, you just, you just peel off a segment, pop it in your mouth. So convenient, so nice, so pleasing to your taste buds. So the orange, a singular fruit, has multiple segments on the inside. But all of those segments are the exact same. They're duplicate in taste and consistency and content. The fruit of the Spirit is like an orange. There's only one. But there's multiple segments. The only thing is, whereas an orange, every segment is the same, the fruit of the Spirit, those segments are different. 
there's nine different ones. Now, what does that tell us, practically speaking? Well, it basically says this to us. If you have the fruit of the Spirit, if it's present in your life, you've got all nine of them. And if you don't have the fruit of the Spirit, if you are following the desires of the flesh, you don't have any of them. You understand that? There's nine aspects to it, but you have one fruit or you do not have any fruit. It's not like, well, I got the fruit of love, but I don't have the fruit of joy. No, it doesn't work that way. You have all nine, or you have none. Now, let me illustrate this for you. Over the years, I've tried to focus somewhat on these two verses and tried to be a spiritual person. I would like to tell you that I've had great success. But I can't really say that. I've had some success sometimes. That's the way it works. It's a battle. It's a battle we don't really often win. Now, if I am late, I do not have the fruit of the Spirit. It's just, you know, if I'm late, I'm just, I'm completely out of sorts. I hate being late. Now, I've got the whole story of why I think that is true, going back a number of years in my book on prayer, but I'll, I'll leave you to search that out if you really want the story. But I hate being late. Now, you understand, if I'm not at least 10 minutes early, I'm late in my mind. Okay? So I'm not talking about on time. I'm talking about being early. And if, if I'm running late, if I'm stuck in traffic, if something else has hindered me, I'm just not very spiritual. Now, we all have something like that in our life. The trouble is we all have multiple things like that in our life. I'm here recently, I kind of said, you know, i got to kind of get back to thinking about the fruit of the Spirit and refreshing my mind with it every morning and trying to be more spiritual. And so I've been doing that. Now, you know what happens when you do that? Well, God helps you. But not the way you think he does. You know, we think, well, God could help me be more spiritual if God would just remove all the irritating things out of my life. Then I'd be more spiritual. No, you wouldn't. You just wouldn't have any irritation and you wouldn't have any reason to show everybody you're really not spiritual. So when we try to be spiritual, God helps us along by giving us some problems and some irritations. And to be quite honest with you, I got up yesterday and I was very irritated about something. And I won't go into all the details. And I'd be way, way too embarrassed to tell you how insignificant it was. But that's just the way it works, you know, with me anyway. It's just some insignificant little thing that irritates me. Disappoints me, discourages me, and then, then you get discouraged, and then you get frustrated, then you get kind of depressed, and you, and then you begin to think of a dozen other things you don't like in your life. And then once you go through them, you think of another dozen things that's going wrong. And the truth of the matter is, God's blessed us to such a degree that all those things that you're filling your mind with are just insignificant. And so we just spiral into fleshliness. It wasn't a, a, a huge step. Didn't take us much. But when that happens, I can guarantee to you. Yesterday, I was not loving. I wasn't joyful. I certainly wasn't long-suffering. There was no kindness about me, no goodness, no faithfulness. You just, you know, when you get in those states of mind, you just want to, I don't want to do anything. 
No gentleness with other people and certainly no self-control. You see what I'm talking about? Just think about it. Just imagine yourself in one of those situations, circumstances, one of those days, and you don't have any of that stuff going on. It's not there. Because you either have those nine or you don't have any of them. They all come as a package deal. Now let's go back to our text. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Verse 23, gentleness, self-control. And then Paul adds this in verse 23, against such there is no law. That just kind of almost seems out of place. But what he's saying is this, you can't legislate the fruit of the Spirit. You can't treat it as if it was, well, there's my list of everything I have to do today, and I'll check this one off and this one, and, you know, and I'll just I'll choose to do it, and I'll do it. No, it doesn't work like that. It, it's not something God says, here's your list of do's and don'ts, and all we got to do is exercise our will when we do either do or don't do it. Why? Because it's the fruit of the Spirit. Only the Spirit can produce the fruit of the Spirit. We cannot do it on our own apart from the Spirit. We cannot do it by willing ourselves to do it. We might fake ourselves out and think we got it, but it won't last long. So against such, or over-opposed to such, or in comparison to such, it's, it's not something that can be legislated like law. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is what needs to be reflected in our character day by day. You can see it when it's there. You can feel it on the inside. Others can see it by because it affects your choices, your actions, your attitudes, your words, your deeds, everything. And when it's not there, they can see that too. Probably quicker and easier than you can. But there's a second part to this. And here's the crucial part. And this will answer your question now about what's banging around in our minds like now, right now. Like how, how, are, how can we choose, how can we be obedient and walk by the Spirit when we can't produce the Spirit? It's fruit. How, how is that possible? Well, here's the answer to that. And here's the key to it all, the second point. Having the fruit of the Spirit in your life on a daily basis is a matter of submission. Now, submission is a word which means we are willing to follow a command. In this case, the command of God. And the, the command that we have to follow is way back up in verse 16, where he said, I say, then walk by the Spirit. The results of walking by the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the indication whether or not we're spiritual that we can look at to determine that. But submission is the way to being spiritual. But it's not just following a list of do's and don'ts. We cannot produce it on our own. But, on the other hand, it is an ever-present possibility in our life. Now, why is it an ever-present possibility? Well, the answer is in verse 24. Paul says, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Well, that would be good if we could just kill all of our passions and desires. That would be pretty easy to follow the Holy Spirit, right? But we, we, we can't 
get rid of our passions and desires. We can't eliminate our sin nature. So what does it mean when it says we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires? Now, the verb here, have crucified, is past tense as far as the way we would look at it in English. It's a particular tense in the original, which indicates it's something that's happened in the past. But it happened at a point in time, and it's over with. So Paul was, Paul was saying, every believer in Jesus Christ, who has placed their faith in the Lord and been saved, been regenerated, that person, every one of us, have crucified the flesh. Well, then how is it the flesh continually bothers us and, and, and afflicts us on a daily basis? Well, here's the thing. When we receive Christ, the Holy Spirit indwelled us. If you have not the Spirit of God, you're none of His, Paul says. I think that's Romans 8 9. When we place faith in Jesus Christ, we are made a new creature in Christ. The Holy Spirit comes in and begins to transform us. But our transformation into Christ's likeness is a slow process over time. It's called sanctification as far as theological term. Now when the Holy Spirit entered into our life, our fleshly desires, our, our old man, the sinful nature, was rendered a death blow. But that nature has not ceased to function. He is still operative, although it is no longer an irresistible force. Once we're saved, it is no longer an irresistible force that we can't control. Now we have the Holy Spirit to control it. In that sense, it's defeated. Now, to say that we have crucified the flesh, just think of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was crucified at eight, about nine o'clock in the morning. That was when they put him on the cross and nailed his hands and feet. But he didn't die until past three o'clock in the afternoon. Now, he was in the process of dying. He was still alive until he yielded up the ghost. So crucifixion is a slow process. It's something that's the ramifications of which unfold over time. There was an article in the Reader's Digest last year sometime. This man down in the southwest was out around in his yard or his property somewhere, and he encountered a rattlesnake, and he killed the snake, cut the snake's head off. <clears throat> Whereupon, after doing that, he reached down to pick up the snake and, you know, throw it away, remove it. And the cut-off head bit him on the hand. Now that stake was dead, but it was still operating by reflexes, whatever. And it unloaded a whole load of venom. It almost killed the man. He was in the hospital for several days. Finally survived. You see, our sin nature has been dealt a blow which has rendered it 
much more feeble than it once was, but it can still bite us. And it will. But we now have the means by which not to be impacted by it like we once were before we were saved. So we have an ever-present possibility before us to be spiritual, to walk by the Spirit, or as Paul puts it in verse 18 of chapter 5, to be led by the Spirit. Just a different way of saying it. To walk by the Spirit means He's the one that enables us to move through life in His power and strength. To be led by the Spirit is just a different picture we follow Him. But only the Holy Spirit can produce the fruit of the Spirit. Now when we were born again, in a sense our passions and our lusts were rendered... uh, (laughs) feeble, and uh, they became something that we could overcome and deal with. The problem is we don't. Not only is it an ever-present possibility, this matter of spirituality is also a responsibility. Again, back in verse 16, he told us to walk by the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is what would ensue if we do that. Now, we can go back to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5 and 18, and see a parallel. Ephesians 5, 18 says, And be not drunk with wine, in which is dissipation or excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, there's there's a contrast Paul is drawing here. If a person is drunk, they are under the influence of the alcohol. If we are spiritual, we are under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's all he's saying. But the verb here is a command. It's just like the, just like the verb tense in chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 16, when he says, walk by the Spirit. He says, be filled with the Spirit. It's another way of saying, let the Spirit have control of you. Now, the verb here in Ephesians 5, 18 is passive. We have to let ourselves be filled. We can't fill ourselves. We have to allow ourselves to be filled. Hmm. So, it's a matter of submission, not a matter that we operate on our own power. Now, in verse 16 of Galatians 5, it says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, or by the Spirit. Now, let's drop down to verse 25. The next verse we're looking at here in our context. He says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in or by the Spirit. Well, now, the word walk in verse 25 is a present tense. The word walk in verse 16 where the command is, that's also present tense. We would just equate the two looking at it in English, but there are two different verbs in the Greek. Two different words. The word in verse 16 where it says that we need to obey and walk by the Spirit, it means allow the Spirit to dictate our life. Live by the Spirit. Give ourselves to Him. To be led by the Spirit, verse 18. But down in verse 25, and this is somewhat of a synonym, but in verse 25 it means to walk in step with the Spirit. It means to walk in file. If we were talking about a military, we'd say, you know, march and keep in rank with those beside you. 
It's just, it's a, it's just a different picture for us. But the Spirit walks beside us and, and He dictates our gait, our steps, our direction. Or you might even envision it the other way, walk in a row. Maybe He's right in front of you. You're following Him. Verse 25 means that, that there's a, a, a greater emphasis on the detail of allowing Him to dictate what we're doing every moment of our life. Not just the general sense of following Him. Verse 25 says, if we live in the Spirit, now that if there is a particular construction in the grammar of the, the original which assumes it's true. And we do live by the Spirit because we've been born again. We've received the Holy Spirit. So He's given us eternal life. He's regenerated us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we're alive to Christ. The Holy Spirit has given us that life. And we live the spiritual life, we live the Christian life by the and in the sphere of the Spirit. And since that is true of our life, because of our position in Christ, then we should do something, and that is the rest of the verse. Let us also walk in the Spirit, walk in step with the Spirit, follow Him and His minute leading, His specific detail and all that He wants us to do. And more importantly... More importantly, all that He wants us to be. You see, we always think of the Spirit leading us as, what do I do next? God is more concerned about who we are and what we are than ever what we do. Because we will never do what we should do until we are what we should be. It is our attitudes, it is our connection with the Spirit that enables us to do the things we ought to do. Otherwise, we're just living by law, and that doesn't work. You try that, and you just find out how big of a sinner you really are. And so, we have this perpetual responsibility. If we live by the Spirit, we are, we're saved, we live by the Spirit, then we need to be following Him, walking in step with the Spirit. Now, that all said and done, I want to give you some practical insight on how you do this, because... All this so far has been theological truth. We have to take theological truth and make it practical on a day-to-day basis if we're going to apply it. So the first thing I want to give you is this. There are two aspects to submission. That's the second thing we're looking at here. It's a matter of submission, and that's the key to how we achieve the fruit of the Spirit. So there are two aspects of submission. First of all, we have to submit to the Holy Spirit's authority. Now, most immature believers, far, far too many believers, period, have a real sense of self-authority rather than submission to the Holy Spirit's authority. Unfortunately, I think most Christians think, well, you know, I'm going to do what I think I should do. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to make this choice. I'm going to go here. I'm going to do that. And God, I want you to bless me now. That's not the way God wants us to operate. God wants us to be operating under His authority. He is the Lord of our life. Should be. The Lord Jesus Christ. So, We are never going to possess the fruit of the Spirit until we understand He is the authority over our lives. 
I think it's 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought with a prize. Therefore glorify God. See, we, he's, we are His purchased possession. So, one aspect of, of submission is simply recognizing His authority. And the second aspect of submission is relying on His power. Because we can't do this. We can't be spiritual in and of ourselves. We can't produce the fruit of the Spirit by ourselves. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit's power. Acts 1.8, for example. Before the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, before Jesus ascended back to the Father, He said to the believers there gathered, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now that word power is the Greek word from which we get our New Test, our, our uh, modern word in English, dynamite. You're going to receive a dynamite package of power when the Holy Spirit enters into your life. That will enable you to defeat the desires of the flesh. That will make you master over your own flesh if you will let it, if you will allow it. And when you do that and you will submit to the Spirit, He will produce in you, as a result of your submission to Him, He will produce in you the fruit of the Spirit, which you cannot produce of your own, because it's only done through His power. So these are the two aspects of submission. Submission to the Holy Spirit's authority, reliance on the Holy Spirit's power. But let's talk about two phases of preparation. Here's practically how you can prepare yourself to actually submit to the Spirit. The first thing you need to do is you need to memorize the fruit of the Spirit. There's nine things. You don't have to memorize the whole verse. You don't, all you got to do is just memorize nine things. And what that'll do is that'll give you a guide at every moment, at every juncture of your life, as to whether or not you're being led by the Spirit or you're being led by your own self and your own desires and your flesh. That's the standard. That's the gauge. Then you have to take what you've memorized and, and think about it and meditate on it and keep it before your heart and mind on a regular basis. I've done all kinds of things over the years. I put it on my home screen, my desktop, on the computer, put it on little cards, put it in my pocket, uh, tape it up on my dashboard. You can do whatever you need to do to keep you reminded. Every now and then throughout the day, just go back and go over that memorization. Love, joy, peace, long suffering, so on. You need to keep in mind and keep focused on what it means to be, you know, spiritual. This is the essence of it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. That's how you prepare for that moment when God says, I'm going to give you a little help. <laughs> here's an irritation. Here's a problem. Here's a, here's a, you know, an issue. Now, which way are you going to go? Are you going to follow your own desires or submit to the Spirit? Now, there's one thing I don't have on screen that I communicated this in the first service, and I realized I should have put it on screen. But And this is probably the most key, so get ready to write this one down. The path to submission. The path. Number one, the path to submission is usually preceded by failure. It's, it's those times that we fail to let the Spirit of God have control of our life. It shows us just how weak we are and how ineffective we are in trying to be spiritual on our own and, and how we will mess it up and how we'll make the wrong decision so often. And when failure comes and we have to confess that as sinfulness to God 
And we really, if we're focusing, memorizing, meditating on what the fruit of the Spirit is, we, we will feel convicted so much more often when it's not there. So the path to real submission is often precipitated by failure. And then it needs to be followed by a moment, what I call a moment of realization. That's that moment when you're, you know, you're just, you're just moving on in the flesh. You know, you're just, you know, you're just letting the flesh have full reign. And suddenly you have that moment where you say, uh oh, this isn't what I need to be doing. That's when you understand you have been failing. And that's when that, 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 it just becomes a moment where the Holy Spirit maybe just jolts you with the realization of your failure. And that in turn, I think, should lead to a moment of submission. A moment of submission. Now, what do I mean? Now, this is the way it happens to me. I fail. I have that moment of realization, and I say, I have to say, Lord, forgive me. And then I have to say, Lord, I can't do this. What I've been doing is me. I need the Holy Spirit to do anything different. And I just want to allow Him to lead me right now. I don't know. I put it in your own words. It's it's just a, a, a moment of spiritual realization, a moment of submission. And when that happens, and you consciously submit to His authority and depend on His power, the Holy Spirit will produce in you love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and all the rest. And if you don't continue to review that moment of submission, I mean, you're going to be confronted with other things, other desires, the flesh is going to continually bombard you. You can swing back the other way just as quick. I think that's the practicality of how it works. And that's why this is the meat. This is the meat of Scripture. It's kind of hard to get our minds around it. It's even more difficult to actually make it a reality. Extremely difficult. We were born with that old nature. We got really comfortable with it for a number of years. And the Holy Spirit comes into our life. Now there's a battle. It's just so easy to go back to being what we've always been. Doing what we've always done. Acting like we've always acted. We don't have to do that. 